Welcome to another episode of Afterlife Mysteries. I'm Kalila Smith, and joining me is going to be my co-host, Billy Roberts. Hello, Billy. How are you? Hi, Hi Kalila. Nice to be back again. It's wonderful to have you back. We're going to be talking about a lot of fun stuff today because we're going to talk about why, why do we have mediums in paranormal investigations? There's a lot of paranormal groups out here. There's a lot of television shows about paranormal investigations, ghost hunting, and so forth. And I've met over the last 30 years, I have met many groups and individuals who stick strictly with the scientific end of a paranormal investigation. And a lot of people don't realize why. Why have mediums? involved in paranormal investigations and it actually can be very advantageous to have that mediumship edge coming in alongside the scientific it doesn't replace it but it's always good to have both don't you think billy yeah i totally agree but i think mediums have always been an integral part of the paranormal um the, the problem i have with paranormal groups is they're playing on a, an emotional and psychological minefield and without the, um, the expertise of a medium present, then it's meaningless. The whole thing becomes subjective. A medium brings everything to life. Uh, and but not in saying that, not all mediums are genuine. I mean, I, I always stick my neck out and say, look, there's only about, I, I would say, 50, maybe 45% of mediums are genuine. And I blame the media for this, the television and radio because they've made it all exciting and mediums um you know me mediums right. have a, a particular role to play in the manifestation uh, of the paranormal and um but it's finding a genuine one and a good one but paranormal groups i am totally against and which is why i've become known as the <laughs> skeptical medium <laughs> I've got to say, but it's I mean, good. I, it's good to be skeptical at times. We even have our own, you know, Alan being our in-house skeptic at all yeah. times. But yeah, it's we good. Need, you have to play devil's we, advocate. We need skeptics, but to, to, from my perspective, there's no such thing as a, a skeptic, because somebody will say to me, "Well, do you believe in all this? You know, you don't think it's real, do you?" And I'll look at them, and then they'll say to me, "But there was this one time." Every skeptic has this one time when they've experienced something that cannot be explained. And I've met many of them. So mediumship is an unusual, it's, it's unreliable. It's probably the most unreliable of all paranormal skills because it doesn't always work. And any medium who claims to be able to communicate with your, your deceased mother, brother, daughter, who claims every time it's going to be successful, they're either lying or they're not real. Right. Well, you know, a lot of things that people don't realize is that when you're doing paranormal investigations, there are different types of hauntings. Not all hauntings are intelligent spirits that you can speak to. They're not all Exactly. Actually, the dead who have crossed over and gone through the light. Um, you've got discarnate spirits that are on the earth plane that are lower vibrational. But I, I think over 90% of all hauntings are actually residual energy. 
there, you know, um, I think you may have a different name for it, but I've always called it um, and heard it called a residual haunting. Um, mm -hmm. It used to be called a shade, but um, mm -hmm. these are not an actual ghost present, but an energetic impression left from a very strong emotion or a trauma or uh, even a repetitive action like the the shutter that keeps slamming over and over again or the rocking chair that continues to rock after grandma has passed these are all residual hauntings and and you've had a, you've done a lot of work yeah. with the residual hauntings right yeah over the years i mean the stone tape theory is the the scientific belief that everything is encapsulated in bricks and mortar and most of these paranormal happenings do occur where, but close to water in a damp environment, uh, gray stone or sandstone. And if you can imagine that as um, a videotape and an audio tape, they're coated with a fine substance, electromagnetic substance. We know that the air is filled with the same substance, electromagnetic energy. And it's this energy that precipitates these images from the past, as you said, you call them residual. So they're like photographic images in, in the atmosphere. And certain individuals can see them. But a person who's not trained, a person who has a rudimentary form of uh, psychism, they misconstrue it as the, the actual entity. But these images don't have any consciousness. They're not aware of you. They're not aware of your presence. They're just floating in the atmosphere. And this is why in places like um, Chester in the UK and, and in Bath in the UK, uh, Roman town, towns, uh, people excavating the, the sewers over the, uh, over the years have seen a battalion of Roman soldiers walking across their path. But these Roman soldiers were only visible up from the knees. And when they excavated it further, they found that the, the original Roman road was lower down. So these battalion of Roman soldiers were not aware of the workmen. They were just doing, going about their daily routine at the habitual side of life. Everything they did every day is replayed, just like watching a video recording. And then you've got something called tribal luminescence which is a, a geological phenomenon. And this is something that takes place below ground. It's the friction caused by two minerals or crystals rubbing together. And that precipitates the electromagnetic atmosphere and will release a lot of different um, paranormal visual things and audio uh, phenomena. So you've, you've really got to have a good head on your shoulders and, you know, you've got to be a little bit skeptical and make a detailed analysis of the things you're seeing. So it's not enough to have a, a mediumistic ability. You do have to have some knowledge of the scientific facts and the paranormal itself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, it's, it, it all works together. You know, I was always amazed at people who, who were doing just the scientific end, you know, taking, using a few meters, some thermometers, and they say, well, you know, I don't believe in having the spiritual stuff there. And it's like, but you're working with spirits. So <laughs> what is it exactly are you looking for? If, if not, 
spirits, uh, you know, and, and what it comes down to with paranormal groups is that they have to understand is that you're not there to remove anything. You're not there to fix anything. You're just documenting. That's really all they can do is document their findings. And, exactly. you know, sometimes their findings are inconclusive. Was it actually a haunting uh, that was, you know, an intelligent entity or was it residual? And nine times out of 10, it's going to be residual. Now, that does not mean that it's any less haunted. A residual haunting can be very, very strong. I've actually had situations, Bailey, where I have been in very negative residual hauntings and have become ill from it. Uh, classic example, there's a, a bar in New Orleans. There was a bar called the Upstairs Lounge. And it was on Charter Street. It was above another lounge that still exists. And back in the, I think it was the 80s, um, on Sundays, it was being used by a church group. Now, this was this was a, a gay bar, and it was a gay church group that was using the bar on Sunday mornings to have their church uh, services while they were waiting for their their church to be built so they were in there having their church service and this turned out to be one of the biggest hate crimes in the history of new orleans uh this was back in the day where they had these uh they had bars on windows upstairs to keep people from breaking in because you had fire escapes and um they also had something where you would have when you had an upstairs building you'd have a stairwell that you would go into and they would come out and they would lock the door and close the latch and put a padlock on it. So it was very easy for someone to lock people into their businesses. Mm -hmm. They didn't give it a whole lot of thought. And consequently, what happened on the morning of, of one of the most horrific fires ever, um, while they were in there having their church service, uh, someone, a person who, for whatever reason, decided to throw a Molotov cocktail into the stairwell and then padlock the door locked. Then what he did was he called the bar upstairs and he said, someone called for a cab. Now these people are in the middle of a church service and they're like, uh, I didn't call for, did anyone here call for a cab? And everybody's like, no, no. And one gentleman got up and he said, well, I'll go see. And when he opened that door to that stairwell, the backdraft sucked in a ball of fire that just was devastating. I, I mean, it was one of the most, it's amazing that there were actually survivors of, of this horrific event. Um, a lot of them died trying to get through the bars on the window. Uh, it, it was just absolutely horrific. Yeah. There, there was actually a few survivors to it, but it was, you know, it, it, it was the catalyst that caused them to change the way fire escapes were, to change the way bars on windows, to, to prevent people from having, you know, a, a, a flip lock to where you could just put a padlock on it. Uh, a lot of changes were made to building codes because of, of this horrible, horrible tragedy. And needless to say, it was a, a very, you know, tragic deaths violent deaths. I mean, a fire, it was horrible um, and very, very strong emotions that were involved. So it's, you know, this hotbed for, for uh, a residual haunting. And I do not, and I know, I don't say I believe, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, these people did not get trapped in these buildings. Nobody's trapped in this, this earth plane. These people did pass on, of course. But many years later, uh, there was a paranormal group in town with a woman that I knew. And it was Halloween time. I was very, very busy with tours. I was teaching at University of New Orleans, a paranormal class. And, and I was I was pretty exhausted. I, I didn't really want to open myself up to anything at the time. 
and they they begged me to go along they said we were able to get into the upstairs lounge and i said well okay i'll tell you what and this is where i was very foolish back then this was back in the 90s and i said okay i said but i'm really really not up to doing anything that's going to be communicating or anything like that i said i will stand in the background and i'll just videotape well you know you know as well as i do <laughs> <laughs> what happened? I mean, I'm in there and I've got a video camera and I'm videotaping things. And suddenly, you know, I get what I call the psychic blind side. All of a sudden, poof, I am hit. And I'm seeing this man whose his face is melting off. He's got his arms held out. He's going, help me, help me, help me. And I'm smelling the smoke and I'm starting to choke and literally had a physical reaction to what was going on in there. I wound up with an upper respiratory um situation going on for three weeks after that it took me three weeks to recover from exposing yeah. myself to that type of negative energy and um i didn't ground myself good enough and i shouldn't have even really gone in there but it was it was really a, a awakening for me to realize that i would rather encounter a negative entity that is intelligent than a residual haunting i mean because many of these negative residual hauntings are just tremendous have you ever had that happen where you were just you know hit with something oh yeah yeah quite a lot i, I did um a series tv series called billy roberts investigates the paranormal some years ago and um i was called to a house um in a, a place called birkdale which is a suburb of liverpool and um, the house was hit by a poltergeist. Cut a long story short, it was like World War Three had taken place. And I couldn't ascertain what the problem was until later on. I found that there'd been a couple of weird fatalities. Uh, an old man had died there. He'd been ill with cancer. And a young guy had hanged himself from the banister, the, the, the um, stairwell. And it wasn't the fact that he was haunting or the old man was haunting. It was the energy that they had created over the years. And it had been left. It was dormant. And it was precipitated by a young girl who lived in an apartment upstairs. And she had a young baby. Now, we know that females up to the age of 12 can have uh, a, a, an interaction with these energies. And it was all to do with that. The atmosphere in this building was horrendous. A couple of clairvoyants had been there, uh, and they'd been violently sick, and I too was sick. But the phenomena that was created by this energy, although it wasn't intelligent, was incredible because a vase actually lifted from um, a, a windowsill and actually shot off onto the floor but didn't break. All these different crazy things. But it left an, an image in my mind. I thought, well, you know, I don't want to, this is not something I want to do. But I did prophesy that the, the house would be sold to a German businessman and they'd knock the building down eventually and build a home for the, for the elderly, which happened. But when, by demolishing bricks and mortar, as you know, you can't eradicate the paranormal activity, it will persist for God knows how long, even right. with a new build. And that, that's what happened. But that's just one case. Um, and so the paranormal is an emotional minefield. And although a lot of people tend to look upon it 
as a bit of fun, a bit of a hoo-ha. We, we, know, we know otherwise, and we know that it can be quite damaging psychologically to certain yes, people. It can. I, you know, I've seen people, I've experienced people, um, people close to me, you know, because I've taught classes for so long, you know, teaching people the paranormal and I've explained to them, this is just a basic 101 class. I mean, this is not something where you take a class for six weeks and then you know everything. I mean, it's impossible. It's years and years and years of, and a lot of it's trial by error, especially when I was coming into this, you know, there was no... There were no television shows. There was very little written about it. And it was a lot of trial by error. And, um, you know, so I see people getting into these pitfalls. And I have seen people become very damaged by, you know, getting involved with things that they don't really understand. And, you know, you talked about a poltergeist. And that's another area because there's different types of hauntings. You've got your, uh, you know, your intelligent haunting. You've got a residual haunting. And a third type of haunting is the poltergeist. And we hear yeah. a lot about this. This has been made famous by Hollywood, the movie Poltergeist itself. Exactly. And then, you know, just take the ball and run with it with, yeah. you know, uh, uh, millions of, of television shows and movies that have been written about poltergeist. And the word itself, poltergeist, means noisy ghost. It's a German word, and it means noisy ghost. And a lot yeah. of us associate a poltergeist with a, you know, an entity that's trapped and they're unhappy and they're 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 grabbing books and throwing them and throwing things across the yeah. room. But as you said, and that's interesting because I always figured with poltergeist, I know lots of times that can be telekinetic energy coming from someone in the house, and there's been a lot of recorded cases of that as well. Um, lots of times a poltergeist is not necessarily even anything to do with anyone who has died. Exactly. Have, have you found a lot of cases with that as well? Yeah, I've experienced where there was a, a young man, he was probably about 22, 23, and his mother had sent for me to, to have a word with him because he had a, a, a telekinetic ability, which means he could move or seemingly move uh, objects with his mind without actually intending to do it. And um, it created all kinds of phenomena because he had, a, um, he had a, a psychological problem. He was actually diagnosed as a schizophrenic and he had other issues as well. But he had an ability which I think was a low-grade mediumistic ability, but it, it aired on the malevolent side because he had a malevolent streak, this guy. And it had to be helped. But, I mean, first of all, the psychiatrist had to help him. He was highly medicated. <clears throat> but he was in the habit of withdrawing his medication because it gave him oh, a heart. Yeah. And it was at that point he could do all kinds of things, strange things with his mind. I mean, that's just one example. But you do have to be very careful. And people with a tendency to have psychological problems should not be involved in the paranormal, my opinion anyway, because it can precipitate all kinds of problems. I think you have to be very careful who you're uh, training because changes do occur, as you know. Changes occur in the brain and the nervous system when you develop your psychic skills. And once these changes are established, then they can't be reversed. They're there. You have to use them in one way or another. And I've had them in our center where people have come along and they obviously have skills, but you know they're not right psychologically. 
So you have to, I put them into a meditation class and teach them the art of meditation, chanting or whatever, because it helps to stabilize them. So it is. It's yeah, a, yeah, you have to be grounded. Yeah, I mean, I remember in my, you know, earlier years, I mean, for, you know, I had abilities as a child, which I turned off throughout my teen years and my 20s. And I would still have things, you know, I'd hear things around my house. And, you know, I'd hear after my parents passed away, I'd hear the door opening, closing, I'd hear the footsteps. I moved 800 miles away. And, and I still had things happening. And I finally realized it wasn't the house, it was me. And when I first started, when I made the decision to open back up, and really start developing, you know, and we're talking about, you know, my late 20s, early 30s, it was a very emotional thing to go through. There was this huge emotional upheaval that came on. And, um, but I was doing a lot of right brain things at the time, even though I was working, but I, you know, I, I, had was involved in ballet and dance my whole life and music and art and that sort of thing in writing and and all of these things were helping me kind of process through but i can see where somebody who's just coming on that cusp of wanting to you know open those doors to the psychic abilities and to mediumship and and that was just the tip of the iceberg back there for me but it was you know several years of, of very very um huge emotional upheaval and and transitions that were going on and it kind of stayed a little unstable for a while and then it started kind of gradually balancing back out and then when I hit about 41 42 there was this quantum leap it was almost like this this huge jump that I made and all of a sudden something else opened up and that was when I became clairvoyant um I had been um clairsentient all along, you know, feeling things and sensing things. But when I truly became clairvoyant, I was in my early 40s. And it was just, and I'll never forget when it happened. I mean, it was, I was actually giving a tour and it was, I was doing a, I was in front of a haunted building and just like, all of a sudden it was like someone turned on a light switch and mm-hmm. something clicked inside of me. And I just felt this huge, this just jump. And it was like, oh, wow, I just saw something that nobody else saw. And it was, you know, that by that time, I was able to, you know, handle those kind of changes. And it wasn't so much emotional. It was actually just I was awestruck at the time. Yeah, meeting it's it's strange, really, because anecdotal accounts of people's lives matter very little to me. I mean, I know you quite well now. But people come and they want to tell you the whole history of the experiences they've had as though it was all new and it'd be new to me. And, I, you know, you like me, you've heard it all before. Um, but mediumship is unusual in as much as it's the most unreliable ability and it doesn't always work right. but for many different reasons. A medium is only as good as the audience or the person they work with. I can't make Alan, for example, or anybody say yes to the information I'm giving. I can only surmise that I know that I'm right. So mediumship is subjective. Now, uh, you mentioned clairsentience. Clairsentience is the most common of all um, paranormal abilities. And it's the one most people have, but it's the most underestimated because I've seen um, uh, clairsentient mediums giving detailed information about the coloring, the name of the person, how they died, everything about their life. And, you know, if they say, well, I'm clairsentient, you think, well, how could you give all this information 
if you just, you don't hear anything, you don't see anything. That's because it encompasses all the ability to combine. Clear audience is the ability to hear. But most people think it's a voice. All the time it's a voice. And it isn't. It can be extraneous thoughts, a sequence of thoughts streaming into your brain. Thoughts that you, you know they're not yours. But you might be involved in making the evening meal, thinking about what you're going to do the next day. And all of a sudden, Auntie Jenny comes into your mind or your mother. And you think, why? And that's because Auntie Jenny or your mum is there. And the only way they can communicate is via your mind. And once you acknowledge that, it will open up other things for you. Right. And, you know, I noticed also that, you know, and for any budding mediums out there, if you are uh, mediumistically inclined, you know, because it's different to be psychic. Psychic, you're, you know, a lot of people are psychic and not necessarily mediums, but mediums are usually psychic. And I also found that my medium skills became more refined the more psychic readings I did because it got to the point, I mean, I started off, I mean, in my young, in my 20s, doing readings with tarot cards, and, you know, I would just, you know, use the cards as, I never, it's, I'm not talking about using tarot cards and memorizing what the book says that means, but you really using the, the cards as tools, as symbols, to trigger saying something about the person and being spot on, but I noticed that after many, many years of doing this, that when I would give a reading, lots of times I would just grab the cards, put them in a stack and set them aside and say, okay, so-and-so is telling me this. And I would always get, I became somewhat clairaudient in that I would always get someone speaking into the left ear. Okay. And um, I always thought that was very odd because the left ear was the one I had the most infections in as a child okay. and yeah. not, my, not my best ear. So, <laughs> but um, you know, even in my early twenties, Sometimes um, I'll, I'll never forget the time that um, you know it was a dangerous situation. I was I was in a new apartment. I had a young child, and unbeknown to me, someone was getting ready to break into my house. And every time I would close my eyes to go to sleep, I heard a voice calling me saying, "Don't go to sleep. You need to get up. You need to get up." And I'd close my eyes, and this it was a woman's voice, and I really felt it was my mother. She had just passed away a couple of years before. Uh, maybe not even two years and she kept saying don't go to sleep you need to get up go to the front door go to the front door and you know i knew that every time i closed my eyes she's going to do this again i better go see what's at the front door and i got up and as i got to the front door i could see somebody had the key to my apartment from whoever lived there before and i saw the doorknob turning and i threw my body against the door and held the doorknob and prevented somebody from breaking in. And that would have never happened had I not heard my mother's voice calling yeah. to me, telling me, go over there. So, um, you know, I know it's real. I, and yeah. I know that, you know, people who are clairsentient will, you know, but I didn't have a consistent situation with the clairaudience at that time. It was yeah. just, you know, in, in a few rare conditions or when I'd be doing a lot of readings, I would get that clairaudience kicking in. Yeah. And for those who aren't familiar uh, with with uh, the Claire audience and all, there's we call them the Claires. And um, mm -hmm. you know, clairsentience is you feel something. Claire audience, you hear something. Um, you have clairvoyant. Uh, you know, became clairvoyant in my 40s, and that is when you actually see something. You don't necessarily see it. I see it in my mind's eye. 
That's where I see it. And I see it like a panoramic view. Some people see things differently. Um, you know, you've also have, um, uh, what is it? Um, what is the one where you smell something? Claire? Is it Claire? Yeah, I know Claire goose, goose something. It's uh, the, uh, when you taste something, I don't really get that. From time to time, I'll get that. But, you know, some people will smell something or taste something. But the, the clairs are different ways in which psychic and mediumistic skills are going to manifest and how your senses are going to perceive them. And, um, you know, you can have one, you can have all. You can start off with one and then gradually move to another. But, um, you know, even psychics who are not mediumistic can, will pick up things in a residual haunting. Going back to residual hauntings, they will still pick up. But I can walk into a room and immediately tell within a few seconds, you know, this is residual. There's nothing, there's nothing active here. It, this is, this is just residual. But it can be another, very, very strong. Another point that should be made, really, to anybody who's developing ability. Uh, I've had a lot of budding mediums and developing mediums. They, you know, they're, they're tuning in all the time. They go to the pub or to a restaurant and they're seeing things with this. You, you know, that is quite unhealthy. There has to be a time to turn on and off. And you have to learn to activate it. And, and it's just like reading a book. If you're engrossed in a, com in a, in a novel and somebody calls you, it takes you a couple of moments to take your mind away from the characters in the book. They're still playing out inside your head. So you have to realize that mediumship is like that. You have to learn to turn it on and off just by taking your mind away from it. And, and that's not easy for a lot of people. That's why meditation plays an important part in the manifestation of development. Because meditation teaches discipline, it teaches focus, it also teaches you how to respond, to be observant, and it teaches you how to use your peripheral vision. Now, women more than men can use their peripheral vision and their peripheral hearing. You can be engrossed in a conversation with a group of women, but you know for what's going on across the room in another group. You can hear other people's conversations. Yes. Yes, Women can. are like that. It's peripheral hearing. And that is also used in the development of mediumship. People who are not creative, people who have an inability to visualize, will never make a good clairvoyant. Because clairvoyance is used, is employed by the image-making faculty of the brain. And simple uh, process of staring at the flame of a candle until you can no longer look and then close your eyes and allow the after image to come into your mind. You do that three times. That helps the image-making faculty to develop. In Buddhism, it's called the kasina. The after image is called the kasina. And the more you do it, the more responsive your, your mind will become, the more observant you'll become, the more sensitive you will become. So mediumship is, is a fascinating subject. It's a, it's a process that's, that's never ending. You develop it and develop it and develop it to a fine art. But it can't be used for selfish reasons. You need to use it to help other people. That's I, true. 
that's that's true. Primarily, the mediumship's job is to give help the grieving and give them hope that their loved ones are able to communicate with them on the other side. That's basically the medium's job is to prove that there is life on the other side and to give comfort to those who are grieving. That is the primary job of a medium. But mediums can also be used for other things such as paranormal investigations where, you know, but, you know, if you ask any medium when they walk into a room, the first thing they're going to say is there's nothing intelligent here. And then they can start telling you about what they're picking up from the residual energy that's there and what they're reading off of that but you know any good medium is going to tell you immediately there's there's no you know whether or not there's an intelligent haunting present because they can sense it the minute they walk in they're going to sense it they're going to feel it or not and and that's important to realize too with with skeptics uh mediums are damned if they do and damned if they don't. So it doesn't matter how good a medium is, they're still not genuine. And it doesn't matter how bad they are, they're not genuine, as far as it's done. But skeptics are few and far between today because I think when you look at skepticism, it's good to a healthy skepticism where the paranormal is concerned. I, I, you know, it's... I, Fascinating. It is an axiom of physics that no two bodies of matter can occupy the same space at the same time. But we know that millions upon millions of vibrations can and do exist in the one space at the same time. So people say to me, well, where is the spirit world? The spirit world is not a place. It's a condition, a transcendental state of being. So our loved ones are walking through and around us often unaware of our presence, just as we are unaware of their presence. A medium is somebody who's trained to focus, to isolate, and to to notice these beings as they walk around you. And once you do that, they begin to notice you. You can't call anybody back. They come back because they want to. lost you there for a little bit <laughs> no no i lost my screen for a bit there sorry all oh, right um, <laughs> yeah no that's very very that's a very very good point a lot of people don't realize that you know basically that's what we're doing we're just we're just bridging the gap that's all we're doing we're making that connection and it, you know it's all about vibration it really is it's all about vibration even your residual haunting when you walk into a haunted building you know when you're using this equipment if you're not a psychic or a medium and you are into the ghost hunting or you are you know or some people make a distinct difference between ghost hunting and paranormal investigation and to me it's the same thing but you know when you walk into these situations and you're getting these meter readings and you're getting these temperature changes you, you know it still can only be indicative of what we call a residual haunting and you're picking up on this energy these energy recordings and all you really have to do is quiet your mind a little bit and you can sometimes start picking up on that even if you're not you know mediumistic you can become attuned to some of the ways that you know psychics work and and picking up on that psychic energy and actually feeling it and after a while, I think anybody can walk into a place and tell, you know, this is this is residual. This is what this is. Um, but what I think would be tricky, though, with the poltergeist, that's a little tricky because I don't mm. think we always know where the energy is coming from. 
And it's almost like solving a mystery, trying yeah. to figure out where is it coming from. But I think that more often than not, it's not necessarily an angry ghost. You know, it's not just no. one factor coming in. I think it's multiple factors. Don't you agree? I, I agree. There's also something called a clone ball, which is a, a manifestation of energy that appears in places of enjoyment, such as theaters, even restaurants. And a clone ball is just the energy that's been created over the years. But when it's left, it can precipitate into something else and become almost mischievous. And although it's very rare now, but you, you do see it, you do experience it in places of enjoyment. I bet you um, we have a lot of that in the French Quarter. Well, when I was there, I noticed um, the atmosphere was completely different there than in, in the UK. It was a, a spiritualized atmosphere. I, I thought it was quite an enjoyable one. And the hotel we stayed in, apparently the, the guy who was on uh, duty there said it was at once um, a convent for black nuns. I don't know if you know that. I well, um, oh, you were at the Bourbon Orleans. You were at the Bourbon well, Orleans. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's that's probably the most haunted, supposedly the most haunted hotel in, in the well, French Quarter. That. And it the was the um, sisters of, um, yeah, the, um, yeah the, the original convent that was there. It was right after the Civil War. It was actually during the Civil War, it was a hospital because yeah. New Orleans was not part of the Civil War. We were actually occupied by the Union and we were not actively present, you know, with the, the war itself, but we had a lot of hospitals. Um, and ironically enough, a lot of them were Union hospitals, but it was a hospital at one time. And um, originally it was the Grand Ballroom of New Orleans. So you had that effect where people were going there to party. This yeah. was the place during the you know, French colonial times, the opera was very, very popular back then. So you had the opera house and what people would do is that they would go to the opera house on, on their weeknights or the weekend nights for their, their enjoyment. And then after the opera, they would go to the ballroom where they would have after parties from the opera house. And it was called the wow. Grand Ballroom of, of New Orleans. And they had, you know, soirees going on from all over the South would come there and, and have these parties in this ballroom. And then during the Civil War, it, be, it was used as a hospital. And then when the sis, uh, Sisters of the Holy Family came along after the Civil War, and the Sisters of the Holy Family were, were African-American nuns, and they formed a convent there and they came there to teach the children to read and write. Um, also, they taught a lot of the little French children English um, who were still speaking French. And, you know, what people don't realize is back then we still had those massive yellow fever epidemics. So we still had people dying by the thousands. Yeah. And oftentimes children were left without families. So a lot of the ghosts and, and hauntings are, are children in the Bourbon Orleans because it was also an orphanage at one time. Because anywhere you had a convent, you had an orphanage. So they see children running up and down the halls. There's a little girl that sometimes she's chasing a ball or a doll and or she's walking around with a doll and you'll see children disappearing into walls and so forth over there. But um, well, it's yeah. a very, very, very interesting yeah. place. Um, yeah, there's the been... Guy, um, what's that? The maitre d', he actually said that... Um, a lot of the, the black nuns were murdered. Somebody came in and um, shot a lot heard. of them. 
I've never mm-hmm. heard of that one. That's interesting. That, that's I've never what, heard of that. I've never heard that Latin. stories. Hmm. I mean, I, I've tried to find it on the internet since then. I've, for, I've for never, book. I've never heard yeah. that. It's not documented anywhere. I've never ever heard no. that. But um, you know, I knew that there were children there. There were a lot of children yeah. there. Um, and um, also, there was this great story that that they all told from over there. There was actually a workman because the the stairwell when you walk into the Bourbon Orleans, that stairway to the right is the original stairway that was to the ballroom. And in the 1960s, they, you know, they brought somebody in and this is when they, when it became a hotel, because eventually, you know, the hotel came in, bought it, the nuns went to a convent somewhere else, and they started renovating it to make a hotel out of it. And that staircase was, it was quite old. So they brought in a master carpenter to restore the stairway to its original splendor of being the grand ballroom and he's hammering away one day he's hammering away on the stairway and he accidentally hit his thumb with the hammer well of course he drops the hammer he blurts out an obscenity and all of a sudden he's slapped in the face (laughs) and as the story goes apparently one of the nuns didn't like that language around the children and she slapped him (laughs) in the face and he ran out of the hotel, uh, screaming that the Bourbon Orleans Hotel was haunted. Mm. And he never returned for his paycheck. Oh. Yes, yeah, that's how frightened he was of it. <laughs> but um, it was so funny because one night I had a, a group of school children, they were Catholic school children, and there was a nun on the tour. And she gave me the bravo. <laughs> When she heard the story, she loved the fact that the nun slapped somebody. So, uh, the, the ghost of the nun slapped someone for screaming out an obscenity. <laughs> but um, yes, it's a very, um, very haunted place. A lot of people the, have the a whole, lot of experiences the ambience, there. The ambiance of New Orleans is quite unusual. But yeah, <laughs> you've, but, but back to what you were talking about. Yeah, that would be a very common thing is to have, um, you know, where where parties are happening, where, where festivities, where yeah. people are you know, in that festive holiday mood, you, you know, you have that kind of atmosphere. So that's not surprising. And it's also not surprising that that kind of energy, if left alone, can become something else. Because I think that's what happened after Katrina. Yeah. Because I saw something very, very strange happen to the French Quarter after Katrina. And it became, it became pretty malevolent because suddenly there's all the partying and everything was gone and some very, very weird things. But we're going to have to save that maybe for next episode, Billy. And we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that phenomena that happens. And uh, we'll talk about what happens when that malevolent energy comes along and also about some of the disembodied spirits that remain in these sorts of situations and, uh, what can happen when they attach to somebody. So we are going to, for now, say to be continued. And uh, Billy, thank you so much for joining us this morning, uh, this afternoon in your case. And um, it was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. I always have fun talking about this stuff. And I want to thank everybody for tuning in out there and hope you'll join us again for another episode of Afterlife Mysteries. Bye-bye for now, folks. Bye-bye.